First Peter chapter number two this evening. I'd like to read one verse tonight, and uh, we're actually catching only half of a thought when we read this verse. But the Lord didn't give me liberty to preach uh, on the twelfth verse, so we're just going to preach tonight on the eleventh verse of the book of First Peter chapter number two. The holy inspired word of God says, "Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war." Against the soul. Let's read that once more. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'd ask that you glorify your Son and yourself this evening. Lord, I'm not worthy to stand behind this pulpit. Nothing of my own righteousness or ability, my own tact or skill, would permit me tonight to stand here and to preach Your Word. But Lord, by the precious blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ, I've been redeemed and justified. By His Spirit, I've been called tonight to preach Your Word. And so I ask, Father, that based upon those truths, You glorify Yourself through me tonight. I pray that You'd help us to faithfully represent and to interpret and to preach Your Word this evening. Help us not to gain our understanding but Yours. And Lord, accomplish in each heart and life what would be most glorifying to you tonight. Father, we love you. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight I'm going to do my best to preach a short sermon. I've been doing that for about four years now. Never have done it once, but I'm going to try to do it tonight. Because I have a simple thought this evening. I want to preach to you tonight on the war that takes place against our soul. You know, we live in a war-torn world. You look around you and you'll find war on every street corner, it seems. And it's uh, easy whenever you turn on the news, if you can catch anything about it, it seems almost like they don't want us to know uh, what a boiling pot that the Middle East is right now. But whenever you turn on the news, you'll see every single day in some street uh, corner market, in some uh, religious uh, place of worship, always and everywhere, there's war that is taking place. But as we study the Word of God, we find that the war that is on the outside is uh, but a reckoning and but a representation of the war that takes place within the soul of every human being. Uh, You know, we don't like to think about war and battle, but the reality is that war and battle is all around us, and war and battle is within us as well. Uh, The Word of God tells us that the Lord is a man of war, and I want to say tonight, to praise His holy name, that we've got a captain of our salvation that is able to steer and to guide our ship through these perilous waters. Uh, Do you know that tonight you have three main enemies that are warring against you if you've been washed in the blood of Christ? The Bible dictates to us that those three enemies are the uh, world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of these are seeking to destroy our life and our soul. And tonight I want us to just examine one of those enemies and take a moment to see what the Word of God says. I want us to notice first off the address that the Lord made makes tonight. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and consider something. This is God speaking to us. You understand that tonight? I don't mean that I am speaking ex cathedra. I'm but a preacher. I am not the mouthpiece of God, but I'm the servant of God. But I mean, when we read the Word of God, uh, we have the voice and the mind of God related to us as believers. Uh, This is just as if God was to open heaven and speak to you and I tonight. The Word of God is that thorough. It is that complete. It is 
that exhaustive and it is that authoritative. And tonight as we read this, I don't want us to just think about Peter writing to a group of scattered believers, but I want us to understand that this is God speaking to you and I. And notice in that vein of thought the address that he makes. What does he say to us? How does he open up this conversation? This always blesses my heart. I love this title. You'll find it some 61 times used in the New Testament. Uh, The very way that God addresses you and I as He says, Dearly beloved. What a blessed truth and a blessed thought. God doesn't address you and I as strangers. God doesn't address you and I as enemies, though we once were. But through the blood of Christ, we've been made whole. We've been reconciled uh, to the family of God. And now we are called beloved. This is a title of endearment. Uh, We are considered those that are loved of God. That's what the phrase means, dearly beloved. And you'll find it many times simply as beloved. It means those that have been accepted and loved by God on high. Now that's a precious truth tonight. We are not at war with our God. We are at peace with Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, We are not strangers to Him, though we be strangers to this world. And we see that here in a few moments. Uh, Tonight, we are part of the family of God. Listen to what the book of Hebrews or Ephesians says in chapter number 1 and verse number 6, it says, "...to the praise of the glory of His grace," it's speaking about God, "...wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved." We have been accepted into the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where this is going to bless you tonight. As we read this, we're talking about a conflict of the soul. And God is drawing some battle lines, and this is what God is saying. He's saying, you and I, friend, we are on the same side in this war that is taking place. I think sometimes we have a tendency, almost like Jacob of old did, to say all these things are against me. And if you'd be honest, you'd have to admit that there have been times in your life you felt like God was just stark against you. Times that you felt when there was a war taking place in your environment and in your soul, you thought, surely God has turned against me. But in the midst of this trial, God addresses His children by saying, I'm not against you, I've not forsaken you, I've not left you, I've not turned my back on you. You are still accepted in the Beloved. He opens by showing us what side we're on. We see the title that he uses, and it's a title of endearment. But notice what he says. Notice the tenderness that he exhibits. He says, Dearly beloved, notice the next few words, I beseech you. Now, there's a lot of words in the Word of God that convey similar ideas to that of beseeching. And you'll find sometimes the word beckoning. And to beckon means to call someone to listen or to call someone uh, to hear. But the word beseech is a unique word. And if you find it all through the Word of God, you'll find it expressed with different ideas. But do you know that the word beseech literally means to draw someone near to you? This is not a title of reproach that God is using. This is a title of comfort that God's using. I mean, the first thing He's done to comfort us is He has addressed us as the Beloved, as His dear children, as those that He's familiar with, as those that He knows. Though you may be at war, God says, you're not at war with Me. I am not the adversary of your soul. I am the advocate of your soul. I am not standing here at odds with you, but I am standing here to help you. And He says, I want you to draw close to Me and hear what I have to say. Can I say that when we come to these times in our life, that's not the time to push God away. That's the time to draw near to Him. 
the times that we have war taking place in our life and in our mind. And by the way, that's what the word soul means. You'll find it all through the Word of God used in different ways. Sometimes it's used as life, and sometimes it's used as mind, and sometimes it's used as heart. But what it conveys is the very essence of who we are as a being. Not just this earthly tabernacle that we're wearing, and uh, not just our emotions, but who we are at our very essence. When there is a war that is waging against us, God says, that's the time to draw close to me. That's the time when I want you to come in for some things that you couldn't have learned otherwise. I've always been struck with the idea of God's pavilions. You'll find that word used through the Old Testament, pavilion. We think of a pavilion, or we think of a, some kind of a big gazebo where you go up at one of these parks and eat a picnic. But that's not what the word pavilion means in its entirety. The word pavilion can mean a lot of different things. And I won't go through all of them tonight, but uh, in the Old Testament, the word pavilion is used, and it can mean this. Sometimes it means a habitation or a dwelling place. But the word pavilion is also used in, I believe it's the book of Second Kings, relating what we would know of as a war room. On the battlefield, uh, a king would set up his quarters or a general would set up his quarters where he would uh, sleep and where he would live. But he would have a separate room that was called a pavilion. And that was the place where he would meet with his generals and discuss the things that they were going to do and their battle strategies and where they needed to be and what they needed to be doing. It was a place of revelation and information. And that was called a pavilion in the Old Testament. Listen to what the psalmist said. The psalmist said of God that he hath made darkness his pavilions round about him. I'm saying when you're going into the war room, you're not going into a place of concealment. You're going into a place of revelation. You're not going into a place of secrecy. You're going into a place where statutes and orders are set forth. And when you get in the midst of the battle, that's not the time to walk away from God, Brother Ralph. That's the time to draw close to Him because He's got some information that you're going to need to know. The psalmist says, in the midst of these things, or the, of Peter in writing, and God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, is saying to us, in the midst of these trials and afflictions, in the midst of this war that's taking place, God has a desire that you draw close to Him and that He tell you some things. The book of James tells us to draw nigh to God, and He'll also draw nigh to us. God's put a certain amount of things in our court. You know, we always like to talk about what God's done for us, what God's doing in us, and what God's doing through us. And those are blessed truths, you know. I'm thankful for Calvary. I'm thankful for the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. I'm thankful for what God is doing through us. But I fear sometimes that we talk about that so much because we don't like to talk about the things that God expects us to do. God has put the ball squarely in our court when it comes to our walk with Him. He said, I'll come close if you'll just come close to me. God has issued for the beseech to you and I. The question is, are we willing to listen? It means to draw near, but it also means to take heed. God's going to reveal some things to us that we need to not only absorb, but some things that we need to obey. So we see the tenderness that He speaks. He's not reproaching us. Uh, and listen, you may be going through a rough time. You won't be the only one. You know, time and time again through the book of First Peter, God talks about our trials. And time and time again, He says that they're not strange. You know why that is? Because sometimes when we're in the midst of this war, we feel like we're the only ones fighting. We're in the midst of this battle. We feel like it's just us and the flesh, us and the devil, us and the world. We feel like we're all alone. And so God exhorts us over and over again, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is try you as though some strange thing hath happened unto you. What's he saying? He's saying you're not alone. 
Uh, the Bible says in uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist ye steadfast and in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren which are in the world. What's God saying? Stick in there. You're not the only one. You're not the only one fighting. He says, I want you to draw near and I want you to listen close to what I'm saying. I want to encourage you is what God's saying. He's not reproaching us for not fighting the battle well. He's encouraging us to draw closer and to get new orders from Him. And what does He say? Dearly beloved, I beseech you, notice the transformation that He invokes. As strangers and pilgrims. We can see it there in verse 9 and 10. I told you I wasn't going to go no further, but I didn't say I wouldn't go further back. Amen. Look at verses 9 and 10. He speaks of this uh, transformation. You can actually see it all through the book of First Peter, but we have just a snippet of here in context. It says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're pilgrims. We've been called from where we were to a place that we're headed to. That's what a pilgrim is. Pilgrim somebody that they're not quite home on one end or the other. They're not where they once were, but they're not where they're going to be. That's what you and I as pilgrims are. We're not still in Egypt. We're not still uh, in Egypt, but we've not reached Zion yet. Uh, we're not still in the bondage of sin as we once were. But we've not been gloriously transformed with a glorified body and free from a sin nature yet. We're in between, so to speak. He calls us pilgrims, but he calls us strangers. Look at verse number 11. He talks about the environment that we're in, and he says, uh, or verse number 10, "...which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." He's saying, you're different than the climate that you're in. You used to not be a people. You used to not have an identity. Do you know that a lost sinner, he's just a face in the crowd? Isn't that right? I don't know what I did to make it so quiet in here, but it just... I don't know if it's me or you, but one of us better shape up. The, the, the sinner, he's just a face in the crowd. Just a sufferer in hell. But you see, Calvary made it as though each and every child of God was individually formed in the mind and heart of God Almighty. You don't matter to the devil. You don't matter to the flesh. You don't matter to the world. But you mean something to Jesus Christ. He calls you not only a pilgrim, but a stranger. Someone that is different than the environment that they're in. Someone that has changed from who they were to something new. We all know when there's a stranger. That's one of the things I love about pastoring, a, 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 I say a small church or some smaller, certainly some bigger than ours. But uh, I remember whenever the first time I ever, and I'll share this story with you, first time I ever walked into Walridge Baptist Church, Brother Ralph, uh, me and uh, my wife were working in the ministry over at Tabernacle, and uh, we had come upon a time whenever it was spring break, and all of our kids were uh, out in nicer weather and, and prettier places than we were back here in Knoxville. And so we kind of had some time where we could take an evening off. And uh, we had heard about Walridge and thought, well, let's just go in and, and be with them, worship with them. And I, I told my wife, I knew that, that the church was looking for a pastor at the time, and I didn't want it to be misconstrued. I didn't want anyone to think that coming over here nosing around for a church or anything... And, uh, so I said, this is what we're going to do. I said, we're going to go in about five minutes late. You can imagine how that worked, right? We're going to go in about five minutes late. We're going to sit in the back. See, I'd never been here. I didn't know we didn't have a back. But we don't. We're going to sit in the back. And we're just going to slip in. And we ain't going to say nothing to nobody. 
And then when the invitation comes, we're just going to get up and we're going to slip out. Like typical Baptist, you know, we're just going to get up, we're just going to slip out. And so we came in, it was on a Wednesday night, and there was just a handful of people here. And as soon as I come through the door, I heard three or four people call my name. I thought, boy, the cover's blown now. They knew. They knew somebody different had walked in. And I don't mean in the sense of being overly spiritual. I mean a, a different face, someone they didn't recognize, someone that hadn't been there before. You could tell when there was a stranger in the midst. And you and I, as children of God, we've been transformed from what we were. And as we walk as strangers through this sin-sick world, it ought to be that when people see us, they see something different in us, recognizable immediately. He speaks of this transformation. Now, we've not got to the message yet. I mean, we're, we're a little ways through it, but he's just, he's just addressing them. He's just saying, this is, this is what I feel about you, your dearly beloved. He's saying, this is uh, the attitude and the tone I'm taking with you, one of entreating and kindness. He says, I beseech you, I'm, I'm asking you to draw close. And he says, this is the reason why, because you're strangers and you're pilgrims. You're not to live as the rest of this world and to act as the rest, the rest of this world. Listen to me, the rest of this world operates off impulse and natural inclination, uh, knee-jerk reactions just immediately. Uh, Peter says, you ought to act differently. You're a stranger and a pilgrim. You're not of this world. We see the address that he invokes and the address uh, that he employs when he's speaking to them. But I want you to notice, secondly, uh, we see in this passage the abstaining that he mentions. We see the address that he makes, but we see the abstaining that he mentions. He says, abstain from fleshly lust. You see it there in the middle of the verse, abstain from fleshly lust. Now, we're going to go on here in a moment and see that these fleshly lusts, they war against our soul. Now, the Word of God uses the imagery it uses for a reason, and it's that of warfare and of battle. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that our enemy is our flesh. What is our flesh? Now, we know what physically our flesh is. Uh, we know whenever you're young, it's nice and pretty, and it fits your skin right, and then you get older, and it all kind of falls down here, and uh, spots everywhere, and you don't know what they are. We know what our flesh is. But that's not what, what Peter is talking about here. Peter is talking about the self-will and self-determination that exists within you and I. Do you understand that we are very instinctive beings? There are certain things when a child is born. I'm learning it now as we're raising a child. Certain things you don't have to teach them. You know, I've never had, I didn't have to teach my son how to cry. You know that? Man, he knew, I mean, the second he came out, that was the first thing he did. He knew how to do that. There's certain things he does by inclination. And we're all that way. It's instinctual to us or instinctive to us. We just, we do, we commit, we, we act, we, we function. That's how we are as creatures. And that part of us is what's considered the flesh, the self-will, that which we do because it pleases us. And Peter says, this is our enemy. This is contrary to the philosophy of this world. And I fear that sometimes as, as preachers we do not spend enough time systematically teaching the Word of God and showing the differences in world philosophies and ideas and world systems of thought. And sometimes Christians get the idea uh, that they don't really believe and think all that differently than the rest of the world does. But I'll have you know, friend, as believers, uh, our belief system and what the Word of God portrays to us and Bible Christianity is at direct odds with the philosophy of the the world. The philosophy of the world is this, if it feels good, just do it. And the implication of that is that your instincts or your flesh is your friend and is there to help you. Now, we could go down the line and we could take personal histories, we could look at human history, and we would very quickly find out that that's not so. 
When men are left to their own devices, when nothing governs them, I mean, why do we have laws in this country? And why does every country seemingly on the face of the earth have laws? Because when men operate in their own will and when they are left to their own devices, uh, they inevitably corrupt and murder and kill and steal each other, uh, steal from each other. Uh, they do this because that's their instinct. God is saying, this is your enemy. Your enemy is your flesh. Listen to what the Word of God uh, says about our enemy, the flesh. In Romans seven eighteen, uh, Paul says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Now, there's a lot of people who aren't going to like this. And I don't mean necessarily in this room, but I mean uh, religiously in the world. They don't like this thought. Uh, but Paul says, In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. In other words, and I know that some would cry foul and cry legalism on what I'm about to say, but I'll stand by it because I believe it's biblical. If it feels good, there's a good chance that it can either be intrinsically wrong or wrong if it's done to excess. doesn't matter what it is. That which is within us, that which drives us, is a negative thing. It is contrary. Uh, and let me put it this way. If you're under self-control, you're not under spiritual control. That's what it comes down to. It's a matter of idolatry. If you're not under self-control, you're under spiritual control. And if you're not under spiritual control, you're under self-control. It's one or the other. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There's an eternal battle taking place within us. And we have to choose who's going to sit on the throne of our heart. Is it going to be us or is it going to be the Spirit of God? We live in a day, and, and I, we've got a lot of older people here today, and so you'll probably just amen me when I say this, but we live in a lazy society today, don't we? I knew I'd get a lot of amens on that. We live in a lazy society. We live in a society that doesn't have enough about them to resist anything, and that's why we live in a world that lives to excess. And so the notion and the idea that what we desire and what we wish and what we want would be our enemy is completely opposite and, and foreign to the philosophy of this world. But the Bible clearly teaches us that our flesh can prohibit us from doing things we should do and can cause us to do things that we should not do. Listen to what Paul says in the remainder of the verse. He says, For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Paul says, there's a part of me that knows what's right and that wants to do it. But at the end of the day, I just can't figure out a way to get my flesh under control. I just can't figure out a way to wrangle this thing that I call my flesh. We see the enemy. But I want you to notice the strategy that's set forth. How are we going to battle our flesh? Well, listen to what it says in Romans 13, 14. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Word of God. It says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ... And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. What does it really mean to abstain? That's the word that's given to us. To abstain. Uh, we know the use of this modern word. Uh, you know, of course, there's in the idea of, of uh, carnal relations, the idea of abstinence, and the idea of temperance and refraining from drinking alcohol, the idea of abstinence. But there's something, I believe, that goes a little further than those implications. To abstain from something is not just to withhold yourself from it, but rather to also guard yourself from the temptation of it. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill... The lust thereof. There's another passage that speaks of, of abstaining. And, and you know what it says? It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Not just to abstain from evil, 
but to abstain from the very appearance of evil. In other words, I'm not just going to not commit this, I'm going to guard myself from being able to commit it. The same idea is used concerning abstaining from fleshly lusts. Now, what are fleshly lusts? They're carnal desires. That's literally what it means. And it says not just that... And by the way, you know that we're going to see it in a moment. We're talking about inward things here. I mean, there's a whole world of outward carnal desires. But you know there's a whole world of inward carnal desires as well. He says that war against the soul. And he says that our strategy is to abstain, to keep ourselves from it, to make no provision for it. In other words, if there's something we struggle with, I always kind of use this analogy. My granddaddy, he, he smoked for, I don't know, 400 years. I mean, it was he, he lived in the day, everybody smoked, and that was just the way it was. And whenever he quit, and this sounds admirable, you know, but whenever he quit, uh, my parents always told me that he took a pack of cigarettes and he laid them on top of the refrigerator and he never touched them again. Well, nobody knows whether he really touched them again or not because they're sitting on top of the refrigerator, you know. Uh, it, it's not enough just to take the bottle of liquor and put it away in the cabinet. Because, see, you've still made a provision for the flesh by doing that. Not enough just to take cigarettes and place them on top or whatever it might be in your life. Uh, to take it and just set it to the side. It has to be done away with if we're going to abstain from the flesh. I promise you this. The flesh is cunning. <laughs> the flesh knows what you want because the flesh is what you want. And you may think you have enough willpower, but the truth of the matter is your willpower is what got you in this mess in the first place. The problem is not that you've not got enough will, it's that you've got too much of your own will. Your will has to be broken. You've got to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our ability. We see our enemy and our strategy, but we see our ability as well. How do we do it? That's what Paul said. How to perform that, I find not. How do I do this? Where do we put this in shoe leather? I mean, how are we going to accomplish this? There's an inclination to do and to act that is within us. How do we actually do this? Listen to what the Word of God says. And I think we gain a valuable truth when we soak this in. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's where our ability comes from. You know, I said a few moments ago that if you're under self-control, you're not under spiritual control. And if you're under spiritual control, you're not under self-control. Now, that doesn't mean that a person that's spiritually controlled is going to be a wild man or a maniac or a lunatic. But what it means is this, that the only way that we can truly live for Jesus Christ is to be under the control and guidance and sway of the Spirit of God. I'll tell you, friend, we have really, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm in between. I, I'm not a young, 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 youngster. I know some of you think I am, but... But, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm up, I'm peaking at 30. It's going to be here before I know it. And, but by the same token, I'm not of an older generation. And I'm at a strange place in my Ralph. Uh, my Ralph, I was looking at you. My life, brother. I'm at a strange place in my Ralph, brother, life. People ask me why I don't study Greek. I can't even handle English, amen. People ask me, you know. Uh, but, you know, in, in, in my life, I'm at a strange place. Because I'm looking backwards at a younger generation and I'm, I'm looking up at an older generation. And I'll say this, we have failed. And I don't place any blame on any shoulders necessarily in this room. But I mean, generationally, we have failed our young people in leading them to believe that the spiritual walk is a set of rules and guidelines that are adhered to. 
That's not the spiritual walk. The spiritual walk is a person that we surrender to, hand over the government of our life to. It's not about abstaining necessarily. It's about wholly clinging to. And if you wholly cling to Jesus Christ, you'll abstain from these things. You see, it does no good just to live with a vain outward show of what some would call Christianity, just to follow a set of guidelines. That's hypocrisy. But to have the life of Christ manifest through you as you submit to the Spirit of God, that's what the truth of Bible Christianity really is. How do we do this? It's not that we abstain through willpower, but we abstain through God's will and through the leading of the Holy Ghost. I've given this illustration before, and I believe it goes hand in hand. There's a lot of mystery, it seems, surrounding being filled with the Spirit. And, you know, the, the, the charismatics thinks being filled with the Spirit is, is sign gifts and speaking in tongues and smacking people on the head, and the Baptists just might as well take it out of their Bible because it seems like they're not even interested in being filled with the Spirit of God anymore, along with most other mainline denominations. And there's just this mystery and confusion about what being filled with the Spirit of God is. But the Bible commands us to be filled with the Spirit of God. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? And I've given this illustration. If I was to take a glass of water and to take a thing of motor oil and try to pour it in on the top, it would never mix, would it? It'd merely flood over top. If I have that glass half full, I can get it half full of motor oil. And that's where most Christians are. The Spirit of God has about a, a tenth of their life. And the other 90% is nothing but gunk and oil and filth and rottenness. To be full of one thing means to have no room for anything else. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. It means to be so submitted to the Spirit of God in His leading and in His guidance. You say, well, how do I do that? When He speaks, you listen. When He commands, you obey. And you'll find, listen, you'll find, I know that some of us tend to think that God's only interested in the big decisions in our life. I, I kind of think that's because God's just trying to get the big decisions across to us because He know we wouldn't listen in the small decisions. I think God's interested in every facet of our life. And I think if we'd obey Him in the big decisions, He would guide us in smaller decisions. And if we'd obey Him in those, He would guide us in smaller decisions than those until the point that we're completely saturated with the leading and will of God. And in every facet of our life, He's leading and guiding us. And that is to be filled with the Spirit of God. It's to be surrendered. It's to be obedient. It's to buffet your flesh to the ground when it seeks to rear its head against the authority of Jesus Christ and to cling only to His will and His desires for you. If we walk in the Spirit, in other words, if we fill our glass with that cool, clear water of life, we'll find there's no place for the blackened sin filth of the motor oil that we try to pour into it. We see the ability... But we see finally, and I'm just going to try to give these to you very quickly. We've seen uh, the address that he makes. We see the abstaining that he mentions. But I want you to notice the assault that he manifests to us, or the attack, or the aggression that he manifests to us. He says, which war against the soul. And you know, I got to thinking about what warfare is like. And there's three things that stuck in my mind, and I see these as paralleling the work of the flesh in our lives. And I want to point out, first off, the aggression that is typical in warfare. Uh, you know, every war around, uh, somebody started it. <laughs> I, I know it seems basic, simple, foolish, but, but that's the truth. 
I've never known of a war that was a collective effort. That was a, I've never known of one side looked at the other side and said, what do you think about going to war? No, usually there is an aggressor. Someone initiates it. And I would say that as we consider the flesh, we find it both to be preemptive and persistent in its war upon our soul. We cannot be passive in this war. Because whether we want to fight it or not, it will fight us. There's so many that want to stick their head in the sand when it comes to war. And listen, I'm not talking about marching on the steps of the city council. I'm talking about who's going to govern your heart. I'm talking about who's going to guide your life, your lips, and your actions. We may say we don't want to fight that battle, but whether we want to or not, we're going to have to. There is an aggressor, and he is preemptive. He will strike us, whether we strike him or not. But then he is persistent. He's not going to give up. I've always been struck, and I understand that the devil and the flesh are two separate entities. I'm not trying to make them synonymous. I understand that the devil uses the influence of our flesh, but they are two separate ideas and two separate things. Uh, The devil is a literal person or persona that the Bible teaches us of, and the flesh represents our self-will. But I've always stopped and and, and paused whenever I would read in Luke chapter number 4 concerning the temptation of our Lord. And it says at the end of that passage that the devil departed from him for a season. It's just season. That means there came a time when the Son of God had to fight against the devil once again. Now, the devil's a pretty smart person. He's not wise, but he is smart. He's subtle and he's cunning. He's more subtle than any beast of the field. And he knows more Bible than you or I could ever hope to. And let me tell you something. He may not want to believe it, but the Bible says that the devils also believe and tremble. I believe he knows his days are numbered. And with him knowing his days are numbered, I believe he understood the implications of the incarnation of the Son of God. I think he knew what Jesus came for is what I'm saying. He knew who he was. And listen to me. The devil knew that it was hopeless. Hopeless. But he still tried to tempt the Son of God. Now, it's hopeless concerning the Son of God. But for you and I, the devil's efforts are not necessarily hopeless. And the flesh's efforts are certainly not necessarily hopeless. Now, this is what I'm trying to drive home. If the devil was persistent with the Son of God, don't you think your flesh will be persistent with you? It's not enough. It's not enough to fight one day. You'll have to fight every day. It's not enough to say no one day. You'll have to say no every day. It's not enough to stand up one day. You'll have to stand up every day. Because the battle will come to you every day. We see the aggression that it's persistent and preemptive, but we see the mission. What's its target? Uh, Whenever they talk about the mission, and a lot of times in military lingo, they're talking about the target. What's the goal? What's the target? The Bible says, which war against the soul. The soul. So we've already said the soul represents uh, man at his essence. Who he is. The spirit represents uh, man in his uh, liveliness or that part which communicates with God or the means through which we can live with God. But the soul uh, represents that which is the essence of man. Uh, Not everybody is spiritually awakened. Only those washed in the blood of Christ and born in the family of God are spiritually awakened. But everybody has a soul. It's what our essence is. It's the inward man, if if we could put it that way. And the Bible says that the flesh is desiring to war against the inward man. That tells me two things. Number one, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. The devil knows if you're saved that he can't send you to hell, but he can wreck your spiritual walk. He can wreck your spiritual life. And his goal is to do that. This is a spiritual war we're fighting. 
We wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is not an outward thing. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. This is not something you're going to see on the surface. But inside each and every one of us, there is a spiritual battle taking place as to who will govern us and who will lead us and who will direct us. But it's not only spiritual, it's secretive. There's people winning this battle that you'd never figure were. There's people losing this battle that you'd never figure were. There are people that are wounded Limping along in their spiritual walk, and on the outside they're all smiles and handshakes. You'd never know it, and you'd never see it. But inside of them, they're hanging by a thread. This is a spiritual and secretive warfare. But we see not only the mission, but we see the intention. Not the target, but what's, what's the purpose? What is he seeking to do? War against the soul. Well, what do you do in warfare? I thought about two things. I could probably think of 2,000 if I need to, but I thought about two things. The two purposes in warfare, it's twofold. To conquer and to kill. That's what warfare is about, isn't it? I mean, I know we live in a day of soft war. You know, we live in a day where you don't ever want to admit that your country wants to beat another country because then you're a bunch of barbarians. But uh, for thousands of years, warfare meant to conquer and to kill. That's what it meant. And could I say that the flesh seeks to conquer you? The flesh seeks to take the government of your life away from Jesus Christ and cause you to live and to act upon impulse and upon pride and upon self-desire. It seeks to run you. Because if it's running you, God's not. And not only to conquer, but to kill your spiritual walk. It's sad to say, but there's some that uh, they are alive in Jesus Christ, but the abundant life that He desires for them is nowhere near to be found. I, I, I just wrote down three things that I'll give to you that I believe the flesh seeks to rob you of. I, I believe in this killing, it seeks to rob you of your holiness. If you're walking in the flesh, you won't be holy. Because your flesh is what is at odds with God. You won't be holy. Uh, You'll be carnal. You'll be hateful. You'll be uh, lustful. You'll be uh, vicious. Uh, You'll have malice. You'll have discontentment. You'll have uh, bitterness. You'll have all these things if the flesh is running you. But not only your holiness, it seeks to rob your happiness. True happiness for the believer, Brother Ralph, is only found in submission to Jesus Christ. I always worry about people who have a problem being happy. We all struggle. I mean, don't get me wrong. You, uh, one of the things I love about this day, everybody come in out of the out of the parking lot, smiles on their face. You know why? Because we've thawed out finally. Amen. I mean, it's nice, you know. And there's a happiness that is that is engendered by that. But uh, there's other days where it's gloomy and glum, and and that's not the kind of unhappiness I'm talking about. I'm talking about true joy being robbed. Christ said He'd give us a joy that no man could take. So if we don't have it, we've forfeited it. We've handed it over to our flesh and said, here, it's yours. Do with it what you would. We see that not only does He steal our holiness, but He steals our happiness. But not only does He steal our happiness, He steals our hope. Hope's an important thing. I don't know that we talk about hope a lot because we talk about faith a lot. And those two things are very similar, but there are differences. Faith has to do with, with grasping that which God has promised. But, but hope has to do with the expectancy with which we look to God to answer those things and to accomplish those things. Faith uh, deals with our actions, but hope deals with our attitude. And there's many that live in this day and they're defeated and they're discouraged and they're sick and tired. And they've lost all hope that God's still on His throne and that God's still able That's the picture of a defeated Christian. 
That's the picture. There was a semblance of joy they had when they were in Egypt. And there was certainly a joy they had in Canaan. But there in the wilderness of discontentment, there was no joy found for them. Constant murmuring and complaining. They were living defeated. This warfare will come to you and I. The question is, are we going to fight it? What will we do to fight it? 